Good morning, everyone. Happy Lord's Day, and hope you've had a, a good weekend overall. And my wife and I had a busy one yesterday. We went and had a family baby shower yesterday, so that was fun. We were loved on uh, immensely, and so that was just wonderful. So we are, um, I'm excited here to jump back in. We're um, going at a little bit more of a snail's pace, but. You know, I want to apologize, but then I don't want to apologize because at the same time, these things are so important that, especially the foundational elements, I think it'll be worthwhile for us to take a part two here for the authority. We talked about the inspiration of Scripture last week, and uh, this week we're going to talk about the authority of Scripture and then the inerrancy of Scripture. And you're both really critical doctrines that we believe in and that are foundational to our faith. So without further ado, let me go ahead and... Go ahead and open us up in prayer, and then we'll get started here. Our Lord, thank you so much for a beautiful Lord's Day morning. It reminds us every morning of what Jeremiah said when under the greatest duress, you are faithful. Your faithfulness endures every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, we see your loving kindness, and we see that evidence even this morning, and we are... We marvel at your goodness to us. We do not deserve your goodness to us. And yet you have poured out your goodness richly upon us. We thank you for your mercy. You have shown us mercy when we were undeserving of mercy. And we thank you that you have shown us grace. Not just getting good things from you, but enabling grace that gives us the strength that we need for each day. Lord, we are just marveling at that, and we want to worship you today because of that. So we pray that you would uh, thrill our hearts to do so, and help us. There are so many deep things that we need to discuss in BTI. Give us the, just the acquisition to be able to handle the information, and then help us to translate that information into worship to you and into our lives. May it change our lives. May it change the way that we think about life and think about you and think about other people and have a proper view of self. And so, Lord, we pray this for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, let me um, fast forward here a little bit. Let's go through here. You can tell we covered a lot last time, so it took me forever to get through that. All right, there we go. All right, so last time we talked about the inspiration of Scripture, and uh, I, hopefully we set a pretty good foundation that you'd understand from Scripture from 2 Peter chapter 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 3. There are other passages I don't think we touched on as much, like Psalm 19 and how important that is to the inspiration of Scripture and um, how critical Scripture is, although... Some of those things will overflow into what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we also talked a little bit about even like circular reasoning and why circular reasoning is actually essential for thinking. You have to have circular reasoning, but you just have to be careful how you use circular reasoning and that you don't use it improperly. And that there is uh, a subjective element where the Holy Spirit subjectively testifies in our own hearts of the inspiration of Scripture. And that the Bible is truly God's Word. That is important. That's essential. Uh, At least at an individual level, it's essential. It's essential for you to believe. You need the Holy Spirit's work in your heart to actually uh, grasp these things, to believe these things. But that's not sufficient evidence for um, perhaps making the case for the objective reality of this being truly the word from God. And there's more of that that I want to discuss with you today, and it really bleeds into this nature, the nature of the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. Okay? Uh, And we can kind of go off of uh, a little bit of a rationale here on why the authority of Scripture is necessary. Why is it important that we understand that the Bible is authoritative for our life. And it goes like this. If God is all-powerful, this should make sense. It's logical. And it's amazing how many people 
want to believe and, and say the Bible is inspired by God and even maybe go to say the Bible's inerrant, although their definition of inerrancy might be a little suspect. They might go to that point. But then when it comes to the authority of the Bible, they do not believe that the Bible has to be the final authority over everything. That It's like Bible and this are equal. And, and so really at the end of the day, it's not really the Bible's the final authority. It's my understanding of things is the final authority because I'm making that final determination. And it's amazing how this rationale, they just cannot, that doesn't even come into their perspective. If God is all-powerful and He's all-knowing, okay, uh, then all that He says is authoritative. That should make sense, right? If He's the highest power, if He knows everything, then anything He says should be the final authority. Yes? I don't think that should be a question mark for anyone. But it's amazing how many people will say, oh yeah, I believe God's all-powerful. I believe that He is all-knowing. Then you should be submitting to Him no questions asked. But they don't because there's something else that's working in their heart that would cause them to do otherwise. If what He says is revealed in Scripture, and this is the second part of this, then Scripture is authoritative. And maybe that's where some of the argument breaks down for people. Well, you know, is how much of the Bible really is God's Word, and that's where people want to go. But that's the point. If you really believe that this, this book is really words from God, then you should submit to whatever this book says. That's the final authority. And we get into uh, kind of like what we did with the inspiration of Scripture. This is now dealing with the authority of Scripture. You have subjective authority, and you have objective authority. Okay, And subjective authority is a term that I think theologians probably use a little bit to describe how Scripture's authority uh, is authoritative because it's accepted by the community of faith. It's, it, it's kind of, well, we all agree that it's authoritative. So that is the subjective element of the authority. It's kind of like a mutual agreement up among everyone. And the only way, I would argue, that that would be valid is just to explain why you individually submit to Scripture. Is because there is a subjective element where the Holy Spirit impresses that upon your heart to bow the knee and to personally submit to the authority of Scripture. That's what I would argue uh, is really the only value to the subjective authority of Scripture. Uh, At the end of the day, though, when you start to use that as your reason for the reason why the Bible is authoritative, it really breaks down because now you don't have really a good objective uh, case for the fact that the Bible is truly authoritative. Uh, it's kind of like saying, um, you, know, it, it, you know, the Catholic Church is like, well, if everyone in the Catholic Church just kind of believes that the Bible is authoritative, that's what makes it authoritative. No, that's not what makes it authoritative. There are actually objective reasons that make this authoritative, that make the Bible authoritative. And so the objective authority, um, so this is the subjective authority here, the objective authority is basically demonstrating that the Bible is authoritative without my acceptance, whether I want the Bible to be authoritative or not. So now it gets a little bit more global, doesn't it? Because now it's authoritative uh, to, the, uh, to the believer and to the unbeliever alike. And we want to walk through this a little bit. I want to walk through this a little bit because this is going to be really important to make the case for why the Bible is objectively authoritative. It's not just a subjective thing. And I want to give you some tools that you can use as you're talking with friends and family uh, that do not really hold to the authority of Scripture or simply don't believe the Bible at all. Uh, We need to have good reasons to give to people who uh, are skeptical and do not want to believe. And so this is really a key way to reaffirm. That's a a key word that I would use. This is a key way to reaffirm the authority of Scripture for an individual. And that is that the internal testimony, testimony of the Holy Spirit, that would be a key way to reaffirm 
the authority, but we're going to be talking more about the objective authority here in a moment, but I just want to make sure that that's clear. The internal testimony of the Holy Spirit does matter. It does reaffirm that to each individual. And the Holy Spirit works through the scriptures to reaffirm that objective authority that's already true, and it brings confidence to us in the accountability of the Bible that it is indeed the Word of God. So again, don't want to take away from the fact that the uh, subjective authority matters. It does matter, but it's more reaffirming for us as an individual, for each individual. But uh, we're gonna, I'm going to argue that there is more to the case that we need to build for the objective testimony and authority of scripture it's important the testimony of the holy spirit is necessary for the encouragement for those who already believe so in other words again the subjective authority of scripture is important in as much as it is for those who really already believe that's good that's a good thing But it's not a solid argument for the authority of Scripture for those who don't believe or who are still searching or who are skeptical. And so I want to introduce this with a a caveat here to kind of ask a question. How do you know, like just in general, not just referring to the Bible, but how do you know when someone has authority over you, right? How do you know that? And it's something that's demonstrated, yes? It has to be demonstrated in real space and time. You actually see that effect. How do you see that when you, when you see that with governing authorities? How do you know that they have authority over you? It's because they pull you over when you're going too fast on the, on the road, right? It's because they actually exert that authority over you. There are punishments. There are uh, stipulations that you must follow. There are consequences that you experience. That gives you that demonstrable evidence that there is authority. So the the point is, is that the Bible should be able to have that demonstrable evidence too, yes? We don't want to just capitulate that and say, well, it's just kind of a subjective thing. The Bible is authoritative because... I just know it is. And because it just says it is, we can go further than that. We can actually show that there is demonstrable reasons why. And there's no better example than that than when you see it in Israel's history. And you see God demonstrating his authority to Israel. How did he demonstrate his authority when he first introduced himself to Israel? He came on a mountain, yes, and came in blazing fire, yes, And there were even consequences that Israel experienced time and time again. So we have actually in real space and time, God revealing himself throughout their history and actually doing so in a demonstrable way. You can actually see it happen. People actually witnessed it happening. Now, what people will argue is saying, well, I haven't seen those things, so the Bible's just, it's still subjective. Well, this is where we're going to break that down and show why that's, that's um, that's not a good argument. And actually, if you want to turn your Bibles over to Hebrews chapter 2, for a moment, Hebrews chapter 2, the Bible points to these things as essential to demonstrating the authority that it carries. The Bible actually points to these realities that took place in, I always use this term, but real space and time, okay? In real space and time. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, for this reason, it is necessary... Literally, it says, it is necessary for us to take heed all the more to those things which have been heard, lest we drift away from them. The, the word there, drift away, is like a, it's like a boat in a river. And when you unloosen the, the mooring of the boat to the side of the shore, it, the river just lets it drift down the water, or even just in a lake, right? You'll see that. If you just let a boat go by itself, it'll just start to drift out into the water. That's the, that's the, the picture here, where it's almost indiscernible. You think, oh no, I'm, I'm static. I'm just, I'm, I'm just sitting here. I'm stable. I'm not drifting. And in reality, actually, the boat is actually moving out toward the lake. So he's saying we must be really careful that we don't drift away. For if the word that was spoken through angels, literally it says, became sure. If it became sure, it became firm. In other words, it really happened. 
And every transgression and disobedience received a just payback, a just punishment. How will we escape when we neglect so great a salvation? In other words, those punishments, those things really happened in real space and time. So how will we escape when we neglect so great a salvation in real space and time? Because we're going to experience the same kind of punishment. Which, at the beginning, after being spoken by the Lord, it was confirmed. It was confirmed. There's the same word used in verse 2. It was made firm. It was made firm to us by those who heard. And here's the key in verse 4. While God was also testifying both with signs and what? Wonders and various miracles and even distributions of the Holy Spirit according to His will. Do you see that? Those are things that happened in real space and time. The Bible is pointing to the fact that the confirmation of the authority of Scripture comes from the fact, from the word that they spoke, it comes from the foundation of the fact that these things actually, what? Happened. That's really important. We've lost that somewhat, a little bit, in our evangelical circles today. We really have. This stuff really happened. Uh, And we'll get into this later, and I'll talk about this in a second. Okay, so Hebrews 2, I mean, it's just a wonderful text to help us understand that these things, this is not just uh, pithy statements. The Bible's not just a bunch of pithy statements that just kind of logically make sense. Yes? This is reality. Okay. All right. The objective authority of Scripture confirmed. Now, for us, we don't have these miracles, these sightings. This is where the debate really comes, where the rubber meets the road. We don't have these sightings. We don't have it where we have witnessed God working in miraculous ways and signs and wonders and various miracles and that they're confirmed over and over and over again and they testify consistently all the way through. We don't have that. For us, the Bible's authority, I would argue, is built upon not excuse me, is not built upon a singular argument, but is built upon a couple of things that tie together, I think, that are really important. And the first one of those is the historicity of the Bible. The historicity of the Bible. You need to note these things, or you should note these things if you haven't already, because this is so important when you're working with someone who doesn't believe the Bible. Okay? The historicity of the Bible. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Most, most of you may have already. But the, the Bible, the religion of Christianity, I should say the Judeo-Christianity, is the only religion that's rooted in thousands of years of history. And there's not, it doesn't even come close when you compare it to any other religion. It's just the history of the Bible is just unparalleled. It's been verified, actually, time and time and time again, by external sources that don't believe the Bible, and yet they verify it. Archaeology is so fun. Archaeology keeps catching up with the Bible. It's amazing how, like, in, in archaeology's infancy, how it would make these incredible claims, like, well, the Bible can't be true because of this. this. These people just didn't exist, period. Great case in point was the Hittites. They literally did not believe that the Hittites existed. Like That was totally made up by the Bible. Ridiculous. And then they found something. Oops. Oh, yeah. Actually, they did exist. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are multiple discoveries that are critical that demonstrate the reality of Israel. The Cyrus Cylinder is incredible. It's a little cylinder thing that was um, put together by the, the Medo-Persian Empire. And it declares exactly what is said in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. And um, Second Chronicles chapter 36, where Cyrus decreed that the sons of Israel could actually return to their land. It's written down in a historical record that we have in a museum. Right? You can actually go there and see it. The Merneptah Stele. I know these are like impossible to spell. I think I literally misspelled it on my paper here too, so don't worry about it. But the Merneptah Stele is a large stele that's larger than the human person who stands like seven feet tall. It's in the Cairo Museum, and when I went, visited um, Egypt for a week when I was in Israel, uh, that was well worth it because we went to that museum and I got to see it with my own eyes, just standing there. And on that stele is the oldest written verbal testimony to the nation of Israel. 
And you know how far that goes back? That goes back to the 1200s BC. You know how old Israel was? They only go back to 1400s. So it was only 200 years later that the nation of Israel is already, already testified to. Isn't that incredible? That shows you that this is history. This is people actually writing about it in that time. This is not just, oh, we're going to make this up 2,000 years later, like religious cults do, right? No, this actually happened in real space and time. The Tel Dan Steely uh, is a... Uh, this was, I think it was discovered in northern Israel. I remember when we went there, and it mentions the house of David. And it's hilarious to hear scholars try to explain it away because they don't want to believe the Bible is true. Well, I mean, no, David means beloved, so it must mean uncle or beloved or something because it means uncle or beloved. And it's like, no, it means David. It says house of David. And it was inscribed probably around the 800s. When did David live? About 1000 BC. So it's 200 years later. It's around that time. Great. It's testifying to the fact that this guy actually existed. He actually was a king in Israel. The Bible's not making up stories. In other words, the Bible is not mythology. It's not mythology. It's what? History. Yes? It's history. And there are several other examples, um, even in Egypt, where um, it testifies to these, to these things. Uh, you have, you know, this king. Of course, it's always from the perspective of the fact, like, um, you know, this king came and bowed down and paid homage to me, kind of thing, king of Israel. But the Bible confirms that that happened. The Bible is also very self-critical to its own nation of Israel, isn't it? Normally, you don't expect to see that in religious contexts. Usually in religious contexts, what? You glorify the nation-state, and you glorify the king, and they're literally impervious to any wrongdoing, yes? Not with Israel. No, God goes after his nation time and time again. That should testify to something, yes? And they're still what? They're still here today, yes? Okay? The Bible is history. Yes, we rest on the Bible and the fact that it testifies to itself. Yes, we need it to declare the fact that it is true, that it is authoritative. We rest upon that fact. But the Bible is more than just, and this is really important, we tend to view the Bible as a theological system, or I should say, we tend to view the Bible as a systematic theology. You know, you know that notion, right? We look at the Bible and we think, oh, it's like, here's our theology. And if only the Bible was a little bit more concise and like kind of just defined things. Why isn't there like a book of the Bible that like has like a, a definition? Like, okay, justification means, right, this, right? Uh, you know, it's the systematic theologies that we have written today. Doesn't that make it easier? Why isn't the Bible written that way? And there's one really clear answer. Because it's what? History. It's History. You need to know it as history. It's not sufficient for your faith that you just have a systematic theology. You need to have a historical record. You need to have a historical record. You need to view the Bible, if you haven't already done so, you need to start viewing the Bible as a composition of eyewitness testimonies. It's a composition of eyewitness testimonies. From a variety of people, from a variety of walks of life, for over a thousand years of period of time. Think about it as eyewitness testimony. When you do that, it transforms the way that you understand your Bible. Um, and you should go to Israel. Just want to put that in there. Because that will change your view of the Bible if it's not already there. It will just revolutionize it. It will be like, oh, this isn't just a doctrine book. No, this is historical. This actually happened. And the, I mean, I haven't even mentioned this, but the hundreds of locations that are there today shows the historicity of the Bible, yes? Hundreds. So start viewing your Bible that way as eyewitness testimony, and then you have a compelling argument for its authority over all people. Uh, you know, I was talking talking with someone last week afterwards about this, but um, some people will argue, especially in the atheistic evolutionary community, that science is really the only acceptable evidence that you can have. It's the only acceptable evidence. That's what a lot of people will say. But here's the problem with that. If science is not sufficient for the case, then what evidence do we usually go to? That's the question. 
You're like, what? The Bible is not sufficient? Yeah, because the Bible is built ultimately, ultimately upon, upon the fact that you are not there and you could not actually see it happen in real space and time. That's science. Science is not this grand thing that's like this magic thing, like people can just wave a wand around, right? It just means I was there, I observed it, it could be tested and repeated. That's just what science is. If science is not sufficient, which it's not when you're not there and you don't actually witness it happening, then you have to go to another evidence uh, facet to explain the case or make the case. What do we do in court? Does science solve every problem? No. In fact, usually science can't solve problems. A large majority of cases, science can never. Why? Because you can't go back to the scene of the crime and recreate it Unless you've got, like, DNA evidence, and even then, sometimes the DNA evidence can be misleading, because, yeah, you were there, but did you actually commit the crime, right? The science cannot recreate the event. So what do we do? What is the primary way that we make a case? It's with eyewitness, what? Testimony. That's what the Bible is. It's eyewitness testimony. In fact, it's lots and lots and lots of eyewitness testimony. So, helping people understand that you and your own worldview, even in our own system, we actually hang people's lives on the fact, in court, on eyewitness testimony. That is essential. It's part of what it means to be human and to make a case. And we need to help people who don't believe the Bible understand that. that The Bible is a historical record of eyewitness testimony. If we rest upon that, we can have great confidence in the Bible. The Synoptic Gospels are great examples of this. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, especially John as well. But um, you should be glad that they're a little bit different. I know sometimes that liberal scholars will try and really put a lot of holes into Christianity because, well, the synoptic Gospels are different, so there must be contradictions, and da da da, da right? They go after that. Now, you should be glad that they're, they're different. Because if they were identical, what would we conclude? They copied from each other. Yeah? They just copied each other. So there was really only one eyewitness testimony, and on the basis of one eyewitness testimony, a fact is confirmed? No. On the basis of what? Two or three. You have to have a plurality. Right? You have to be able to make the case from what? Multiple angles. That's what the Gospels are. In fact, it's really great to see the fact that they're different, and yet what? You can reconcile them, which is how you do it in court. Yes? You get multiple witnesses, and when you hear confirming evidence from multiple angles, you're just seeing different details factoring in. You put it all together, oh, it does make sense. It actually does create, recreate a situation with a lot of color and a lot of variety. Then you have evidence for the fact that this case can be made. That's the Bible. That's the Synoptic Gospels. Even you could even do that with uh, Kings and Chronicles. You got different angles of the same stories. All right, so that's the historicity of the Bible, and that's really important for defending the objective authority of Scripture. Now, also, secondly, there's three of these. It's rational. It's rational. The Bible has a logic to it. And it actually works. It actually makes sense. There's cause and effect. Um, If this is true, then this must be true. And the Bible has a complete worldview. It's complete. It's a worldview that doesn't, it's not lacking, which for religion purposes is basically impossible for man to invent. It's basically impossible. You cannot build... You can build a worldview, but not a complete worldview. It's very difficult, because as time goes on in history, you begin to discover things that you didn't know, and it outdates the things that you had previously asserted. Yes? (laughs) So, how do you build a... How do you invent a completely worldview? You can't. It's not really possible. That's why... All false religions are dead unless they're dependent upon Christianity. Essentially. Essentially. Not, that's not entirely across the board, but essentially that's the case. Uh, because Christianity, once, once Jesus came on the scene, it completely dismantled mythology. That's what I'm really referring to. 
it completely dismantled mythology. The Bible makes logical sense, and it stands side by side with a scientific worldview. And you need to listen to lectures, if you haven't done so, to creation scientists, such as uh, Institute of Creation Research um, or Answers in Genesis. Uh, they have a lot of free things online. You can go on YouTube. You can find those things. I, rec- I highly recommend those things to you because you can see how the Bible lines up with scientific thinking, which is great because we think we're getting more advanced in technology. We're understanding things. We're outdating the things in the past. But the Bible continues to what? Stand. It's not being outdated. It's actually being confirmed. And so just like archaeology, science is catching up to the Bible. It's catching up to the Bible. And the more that we understand scientific thought, the more it's like, oh, actually, it does confirm what the Bible says. That's exactly what the Bible says. And what's really cool is that the Bible answers all the meaningful questions of life. Who can do that? Who can actually have a good answer for all of the big questions of life? What worldview can do that? Here's a big one. You're like, well, you know, there's other religions that answer the big questions of life too. Yeah, can they answer the problem of evil sufficiently and handle it? Can they? The Bible does. The Bible answers the problem of evil. Well, other religions have wisdom literature. You know, I know the Bible has Proverbs. But, you know, there's other Proverbs out there, too. There's Oriental Proverbs, and there's um, Proverbs that go back to even English backgrounds and uh, Anglo-Saxon backgrounds and things. Um, But my argument would be, yeah, I know, there's a lot of Proverbs that help you understand life and things like that. makes sense. Proverbs does that a lot. It's great. But what about the wisdom that comes from Job and from Ecclesiastes, which I like to coin anti-wisdom. It sounds bad. You're like, it's not wisdom? It's anti-wisdom? No, no, no. It's the kind of wisdom that you wouldn't expect. It's the kind of wisdom that you wouldn't expect. And when you really understand it, it transforms everything about life. It handles the problem of evil and then goes beyond it. It's incredible. When you really understand it, we walked through it with Job. I'm not going to rehash that again. When you really see it, it changes everything. More on that later when we get to Ecclesiastes, I guess. But all right, that's it's rational. Okay, it makes sense. And last, my favorite, it's intertextual. It's intertextual. I've talked about this a few times. The Bible has a thought process about itself. That's incredible. The Bible can actually think by, um, about itself. And the way that we see that is by authors talking about other authors and how they're depending upon that, that terminology. And I know that there's other books that, you know, a, a history of documents that could do that, but there's nothing close, not even close, to what the Bible does in its intertextual cons- considerations. The Bible thinks about itself. If we can understand how the Bible thinks about itself and prove that it maintains that same, proce- same thought process all throughout and that same methodology to show that in every passage, in every area of Scripture, even down to the very details, then we have demonstrated its authority. It has authority. Because what you're doing is you're showing that there's consistency across the board intertextually between authors, between texts. And if you can demonstrate the the thought process is actually unified, it's actually making proper connections, uh, unlike we've ever seen even before, perhaps. When you actually see that, that web, it's like a spider's web that's just an incredible maze of connections. It's perfect intricate and it has when you step back there's an actual design to it that's the Bible the more that you understand the details and you see how they're connected and you begin to step back and you see it still has this incredible design that web of connections cannot be contrived it can't be fabricated it can't be invented by man and what you've demonstrated is that there's one author when it's unified yes one author Author, a.k.a. authority. Yes? You've demonstrated authority. There is objective authority to Scripture. I hope that you can come away with that. And you can actually demonstrate that to, to people who struggle with that. It does take painstaking labor to prove this out in every detail, uh, to make 
every connection to make the rationale that the argument's making. But you can, you, you can figure that out. You can, and you have to get down to the terminology. You have to get down to the grammar of the text. And when you do that, it really comes alive. You, you actually see the vitality of Scripture at work. And the more you do, uh, the more that you go into the intertextual connections, the more that you see this microscopic precision that the Scripture has in these web of connections that are taking place. I mean, no human could orchestrate that. Um, Turn your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. This is a good example. I'm just giving you an example of intertextual connections here. This is that story of um, Judas going to the to the chief priests and trying to sell Jesus out. And you probably know the story well. He throws the silver pieces into the temple area. Matthew chapter 27, verse 8. For this reason, the field, this is the, they actually bought a field with that, those silver pieces. Okay? And so Matthew is making a really important connection historically. Something historically really happened. And Matthew recognizes this is repeating something that happened in the past. Uh, verse 8 the field, that field uh, was called the field of blood until this day. And then verse 9 then what was spoken by who? What does it say? Jeremiah, yeah? The prophet was fulfilled, saying... And then he talks about the... You know, they took the silver pieces, right? Um, and if you look at your... If you have a side margin in your Bible, you have a reference point, you look at the passage, you're like, oh, you should expect to see a passage from Jeremiah. What passage is there? It's Zechariah. You're like, oh, no, there's a contradiction in the, talk, contradiction in the Bible. It's, it can't be true. Uh, how does how this work? And the point is, is that there is an intertextual web of connections going on here because Zechariah and his ministry is actually... What Zechariah writes about in Zechariah 11 is actually dependent upon who? Jeremiah. And Jeremiah 18. It's really important to understand that because there was a stepping stone that Matthew understood was taking place. He saw the intertextual connection between Zechariah and Jeremiah. And he understood that what Zechariah was prophesying was not the first time that it was being prophesied. It's actually going back to where? Jeremiah. And so Matthew actually adds his own piece to the thread of this intertextual connection. Jeremiah leads to Zechariah, which leads to Matthew. And you have a fulfillment of the case of that, that uh, prophecy. I don't have time to get into the weeds on that one, but I just want to give you an example of that because that's how intertextual connections work, and they're everywhere. They're everywhere in Scripture. And they're often, well, a lot of scholars and commentators, they become stumbling blocks for them. They begin to say, well, either one, the Bible's an error, that's the liberal scholars, or some of the conservative scholars will say, well, the author is just using those words for his own purposes, but he's not really fully understanding the Old Testament text. No, that's not true. Actually, what's, what's the problem? We don't understand the Old Testament text properly. We need to understand it better. These three pegs, we've got historical, rational, intertextual. These are the pegs that buttress the evidence for the authority of the Bible for all people, not just for those who believe. This is for the unbeliever as well. And when they are testified to in the text, they make for a compelling case in confirming the authority of the Bible. You need that internal testimony from the Holy Spirit. That's true, but that historical, rational, intertextual connection places the Bible in a worldview that outshines every other worldview when considering all three of these categories. It's really important to understand that. And so you could argue, you can argue for the fact very capably that what other worldview or religion has a reliable historical record 
and it's perfectly cohesive in ex- explaining man and who he is and creation and the purpose of life and communicates it with consistency and depth that we are still mining out to this day. The only worldview that does that is the Judeo-Christian worldview. So when we think about our... So you're like, okay, so we're down to like, what, two religions at that point? When you think about Judaism, it's just what? It's Christianity incomplete. Yes? It's Christianity incomplete. And if actually the Jewish person took their Old Testament uh, as it was intended to be, then they would what? Immediately usher themselves into the Christian worldview. And they would find that they need Jesus as their Messiah. He's the only one that could fulfill all of that. So that you can't do that with Islam. Islam is not historical. It's not historical. It's one guy who had revelation from God. That's on the basis of how many witnesses? One. With no history backing. Now they go and try and reinvent history, but that's over a thousand years later they're trying to reinvent history. 1,500 years later. That's incredible. The audacity to do that in a religion, it's just, it's incredible to do that. Uh, It's 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 uh, arrogant, really, to do that. Uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, do not have history on their side. The Native American deities and spirits, they don't have history. The Roman pantheon is mythology. None of these are historical, and some of them don't make a lot of sense either. And then when you have the Bible proving out its intertextual connections, that just goes even that much more beyond. All right, we have to we have to run because we're we're running slow, low on time here. Let's talk about the subjective authority of Scripture reaffirmed. So we've talked really extensively about the objective authority, but let's talk a little bit about the subjective authority, the biblical basis for the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Turn your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. A a common text for us who have been um, taught in, in the church. We understand this from the words from Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In verse 4. My word and my preaching did not come with persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. Why? So that your faith may not rest upon the wisdom of men, but what? On the power of God. And as you walk through this, you see this wisdom that the the rulers of this age could not have understood and could not have known. And verse 10... God revealed them, even so, even though He didn't reveal them to the, to the rulers and to the forces of this age, God revealed them to us through the Spirit. And so you have this subjective element of this revelation that comes directly from God. Now, a, a really good study, if you ever want to do this, and remember at the end of BTI, there's Module 7 where you can pick a passage or pick a, a set of verses. You can try to do that here if you want in 1 Corinthians 2, if you ever want to. Uh, a great study is to look at the interchange between the we's and the you's in this text. The we's and the you's. You should take special note of that. Because as you walk through this, it's really interesting that he says, verse 6, but we are speaking a wisdom among the... Mature. So there's the we. We are speaking. Verse 7, we are speaking. And then verse 10, God revealed to who? To us. There's the we's and the, the us's, yes? But look, at, look up at verse 1. Go back to verse 1. But I coming to who? To you. There is an interchange of we's and you's that are taking place in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And look at chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brothers was not able to speak to who? To you. Go back to verse 16, chapter 2. For who knows the mind of the Lord, or who became His counselor? But what? We. The question is, is who is the we and who is the you? And what I would argue in this text is that the we is referring to the apostles. That's what's being described. You actually see that confirmed time and time again, that this is actually the apostles when he's referring to the we. But then when you see, when he talks to the you, he's talking to the Corinthians, who are also fellow believers, yes? And the point is is that the Word of God and the testimony of the Spirit started when it worked and communicated directly to the apostles. And then they hand off that testimony to the Corinthians and to all those who believe. 
So just be careful because when it says, like, we have the mind of Christ, sometimes it can be an excuse to say, well, I, I just know because the Holy Spirit abides in me. Yes, that's true. But I can just know God because I have the Spirit in me. And I can understand the Bible just because I have the Spirit. That's partially true, but in another sense, you have to be careful because that's what's called the doctrine of illumination, and that is a good doctrine, but I think it needs a little bit of refinement because how in the world do you have liberal scholars who understand the Bible better than Christians do? They can actually understand what it says, and they actually can mine it out in deeper ways. How is that possible if they don't have the Spirit? The doctrine of illumination isn't much as much about understanding the Scriptures as much as it is submitting to the Scriptures. That's really important. Submitting to the Scriptures. It's not understanding. You can't just naturally... I supernaturally have the ability to just understand the Scriptures. Why? Because you have two different believers that disagree with each other on the Scriptures. Well, what's going on there? How is that possible? Because isn't the Holy Spirit in both of them and giving them both understanding? No, the issue is understanding the Scriptures just comes from what? Studying the Scriptures. Getting in depth into the Scriptures. But the Spirit helps to what? Open your eyes as you work through the text to see things that perhaps you didn't see before. I know unbelievers can do similar kinds of things, but when it comes to actually then submitting to the Scriptures, now that is illumination. Because then you actually what? You see the Scriptures in reality. Now, Now it's a different thing. Now you're really seeing, yes? That's the doctrine of illumination. Uh, I included that in here because I wasn't sure if we'd even cover that in BTI. Maybe we will. I don't know. It might show up in the notes at some point down the road. But it's really important. The Spirit, though, gives you this internal testimony. And the Spirit is the one, as uh, chapter 2, verse 10, as we saw, is the one that gives us the content of Scripture. And that's what the apostles write. So the Spirit revealed that to the apostles. And the apostles give that to us. Or, or the Spirit gave it to the prophets in the Old Testament. And without... And I'm sorry, I've been... Let me kind of bring these things in here while... Um, I forgot to bring these things through here. I'm moving through the notes. Um, without the inner working of the Spirit, one cannot accept Scripture. But they can understand it in unbelief, such as like a, a liberal scholar could. So that's, that's actually true. So um, the, the Spirit persuades through the Word, as we saw in verse 4. The Spirit is the one that actually gives the content of Scripture, and then faith rests ultimately on God's power, not man's. Okay, And make sure I get all of those down there for you to see. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 there at the end point there. Uh, notes, it says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You can see that. That, that's the, that is the reason why they believed, is because of the Spirit. Because of the power of the Spirit working in His people. And we see that example in the Thessalonians, and we know that example personally in our own lives. Alright, so that's the subjective authority of Scripture. And just to give some implications... Kind of switch, switch back to a little bit of the authority. The, I guess you could say the objective and the subjective authority. The implications here are, one, we need to be hearers of the word. We need to be hearers of the word. James chapter 1, I love how it champions both. And um, we want to be careful not to ignore both commands, yes? Um, we'll look at James chapter 1 and we'll be like, we need to be doers of the word. Oh yes, that's really important. We'll talk about that in a second. But... We need to start with the fact that, but be hearers. Yes, we need to be hearers. Quick to listen and slow to speak. Quick to hear. We need to be hearers of the word. And we need to be doers. That's really important because often we can become hearers and then we don't actually apply and do the things that we are called to do. And another implication to this is that the scripture, the Bible, becomes really the referee really the divine umpire in all matters as we discuss things among one another as we debate things that we might disagree upon we have to go where to scripture to prove out the point another implication the bible or should it say the biblical gospel of the bible is authoritative it's the only authoritative uh, element and, and it's, it's, it's powerful 
I should put it this way, only the biblical gospel is authoritative and powerful. Uh, Romans 1 verse 16 uh, speaks to that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. It has the ability to transform those who believe. The wishes of Jesus Christ himself, the head of the church, are expressed in Scripture. That's another implication. The wishes of the head of the church, Jesus Christ himself, they are expressed in Scripture. And so we understand what does Christ want us to do, and we need to follow whatever Scripture says. Scripture is our, our guideline, or not just our guideline, it is our rule of practice in the, in the church. And then, finally, the local church is compelled to examine its own functioning in light of Scripture. And that should be pretty natural coming from the other implications there. The local church should be compelled to examine itself in the light of Scripture. Okay, so those are the implications for the authority of Scripture. And finally, we're going to talk about the inerrancy of Scripture with the brief time that we have left. Okay. Inerrancy of Scripture. Number one, um, we have the these definitions of inerrant. And really, inerrant is not that hard to, to define. It means without error. That's what it means. It means without error. That's pretty easy. There's another word that uh, theologians will use, and it's infallible. It means that it cannot fail. It's a little bit more regarding the purpose. It, what Scripture sets out to do, it, it will not fail to do. The mission that it is seeking to accomplish. In, inerrant kind of has more of the idea of, you know, when you're getting into the text, and you're like, every word is actually true. There's no, like, falsehood. There's no false information in the text. It is without error. The Chicago Statement on Inerrancy puts it this way. Uh, this is uh, from 1978 in Article 11. It says, we affirm that Scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible. It means it cannot fail. So that, far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters it addresses. Okay, that's how the Chicago Statement states it. It's a, it's a good, good statement there. Wayne Grudeman, his commentary, Systematic Theology, or not commentary, Systematic Theology says, the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture uh, in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Oops, sorry, I didn't put that one up there. Uh, and that's helpful. And also notice the caveat of in the original manuscripts. And we have more to talk about that next time we talk about our theology segments uh, with the preservation of Scripture and canonicity. The biblical basis for inerrancy... Uh, that we want to establish here. The Bible's teaching on inspiration um, is what we want to address. And 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. It's important to understand that inerrancy is built upon the backbone of inspiration. Inerrancy really is derived from the fact that if God really inspired these words, if God is actually the one that's communicating them, then they should be what? Without error. They should be. The Bible's teaching concerning its own authority, we can even see this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, uh, where he, Jesus says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota or one little serif script that's literally what it says like a the partial script of a, of a letter will not pass away from the law until all is accomplished wow that's quite precise isn't it that's jesus's own testimony to how accurate the law is it's down to not only just down to the letters it's down to the very like script writing of the letters that would help you to understand the difference between one meaning and another. Scripture's use of Scripture, we see this uh, extensively throughout the Bible. Whole arguments we could see resting upon one word of Scripture. Like in Matthew chapter 22, when he says, um, How is it that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? 
saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies uh, as a footstool under your feet. The Lord said to my Lord. He's depending that argument on one word in the text. And that the whole case is uh, dependent upon that. In also, we have uh, the tense of verbs could even it could even get down to the fact that a verb would be I am, like it's actually in the continuous present tense to demonstrate the truth of the resurrection. When he says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 32, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob, meaning that what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still exist which means there is a resurrection. I mean, just the fact that there's actually like a verbal tense that he goes after there. In fact, even in Hebrew, there's actually no verb there. So it's actually even implied in the text just how the grammar is constructed. So it even gets down to not even just the word, but just the implication of how the grammar is set up with the words. That's incredible. Oh, yeah, I'll just make this point here, but we'll move on to this other slide. If the text is not inerrant, then it's difficult to see the point in these arguments. Someone could say, well, the text of the Old Testament is questionable at that point and could be wrong. And so the point is, is that it's, a, it's vital for us to understand that the inerrancy of Scripture, it has import in the way that we think about the Bible and how we talk about the Bible with others and how, how we make our arguments. Okay. All right. The Bible's teaching of the character of God, just moving quickly through this, God cannot lie. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. God cannot lie. God is truth. God's word is also said to be truth. You even have statements in the Old Testament where it says multiple times, thus says the Lord, that brings this atmosphere of inerrancy to it. The fact that this is exactly what God says, and this is exactly authoritative. It's absolutely true. And the fact that there are no demonstrated errors in Scripture. There just aren't. And people might say, well, yes, there are, and they're just not willing to hear the evidence from the other side, the fact that there actually are great explanations to those things. There are no demonstrated errors in Scripture. Other issues related to inerrancy. Inerrancy applies to all parts of Scripture as originally written. And that's really important. And we'll talk about this next time uh, when we talk about preservation and canonicity. Any copy, any copy that we have from the Bible might contain some weaknesses. It might contain copying errors. It's just a large corpus of material to copy over, and there are, there's inevitably going to be different uh, variations in the copies. Uh, we, you know, even in the transmission and the translation, we might have issues in terms of, of how the words are uh, communicated to us. In other words, we hold to a derived inspiration that the copies and the translations are inspired in an inerrant to the degree to the to the degree that they reproduce the originals. That's really important. In other words, it's the original manuscripts that are truly inerrant. Inerrancy doesn't mean everyday speech cannot be employed. You can have, for instance, round numbers that um, will be employed, and we do that all the time in our language. We have technical language um, that's, uh, we don't need to demand technical language. Like when it says, like, the sun rose, it doesn't literally mean that the sun actually was the one that's doing the rising. That's not the point. We do that all the time in our language as well. Figures of speech can be employed. We see that in Psalm 19. Okay. Free quotations, that doesn't mean that that implies error. In other words, they can paraphrase things. We do that all the time. Uh, it, there's, there's no expectation in the text that it has to be an exact uh, quote from that text in the Old Testament. It doesn't have to be exactly like that. It's just explaining the text and using some of the terms to, um, to bring that, that text to light. Uh, and inerrancy doesn't guarantee an exhaustive account of every single, um, every single account that we, we see. For instance, you don't have to explain every detail. Well, this, the, you know, Mary and the women were talking to one angel, but this text says that there were two angels present. Yeah, they were talking to one angel. That's okay. Doesn't have to show you that there's another angel there. I have an example of that, but I'm kind of running out of time, so I'll, I'll leave that for another time. Uh, but it is really important to understand that we even do that all the time uh, in even our literature. It's really interesting, but uh, more on that later. Um, the key is to understand what the author is actually claiming. That's the point. Is he claiming that 
okay, the sun is truly the one that's the one that's moving in the galaxy or in the solar system. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not his point. Is he claiming that someone counted all the dead bodies of the Assyrians and said, well, it's exactly 185,000. Isn't that incredible? Wow, that's, that's amazing. No, he's not doing that, and you should understand that from the genre and from what he's saying. He's not trying to communicate that. It's not trying to be that precise. In other words, don't put standards on Scripture that you yourself don't measure up to. That's basically the bottom line. Don't put standards on Scripture that you don't actually measure up to. We do, all these, we do these things all the time in our own language. We shouldn't expect the Bible would do anything different. The Bible is accommodating language to help us to understand what is really meant. What's the true import of what's being said? Okay, all right. I've, I've held you a little bit long. Let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll, we'll conclude here. Father, thank you so much for uh, just these incredible truths that we have, knowing that the Bible is truly inerrant. It is truly from you, which means it's truly inspired. It's God breathed, and it is authoritative for our lives. May that influence and affect the way that we live today, and may we submit ourselves even that much more under the authority of Scripture, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate it.